Okay, so you're here for some great church leadership content. The podcast is great, but there's also another piece of content you need to be enjoying each week. It is the Leading Saints email newsletter. Now I get it. Email newsletters feel so 2006, you know, but it isn't as old fashioned as you might think. It's actually one of the most popular pieces of content that Leading Saints produces. Each week, I share a unique leadership thought that can only be found in the newsletter. I keep it short and sweet. Most can read it in less than five minutes. And then we share with you recent content you might have missed, throwback episodes, and Leading Saints events that happen more often than you might anticipate. If you want to make sure you are on the email list, simply visit leadingsaints.org 14. That's leadingsaints.org 14. That will also get you 14 days access to our full library of content not available to the general public. So look for Leading Saints in your inbox by going to leading saints.org slash 14 or click the link in the show notes. So you're checking us out as maybe a potential podcast you could start listening to. I know many of you have been listening for a long time, but let me just talk to the newbies for a minute. What is Leading Saints? What are we trying to do here with this podcast? Well, let me explain. Leading Saints is a nonprofit organization, a 501c3 is what they call it. And we have a mission to help Latter-day Saints be better prepared to lead. Now, of course, that often means in the context of a calling, it may mean in your local community, your work assignments. We've heard about our content influencing all sorts of leaders in all sorts of different contexts. We invite you to listen to this episode and maybe a few others of our 500 plus episodes that we have out there. Jump in and begin to learn and begin to consider some of these principles we talk about on the Leading Saints podcast. Today, we're headed out to California with Kathy Marler. How are you, Kathy? I'm doing great. Thank you. How are you today? Very good. Well, I'm excited to have you on here. We actually met in person years ago. Uh, I, I don't know if it was years ago, but a few years ago when uh, I was in your area and had the privilege of doing a fireside for your steak. And uh, I don't remember much of our conversation, but we did meet, right? <laughs> we did, actually. Yes, we did. And I can cool. still remember some of the things you talked about, about being great leaders in our area. So okay. it was great. Well. Thank you. <laughs> and they just split the stake. So I'll take all the credit for the, the go, growth bro. and success. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Now, maybe just give us a quick background of you and, and put yourself into context. Well, I joined the church when I was 18 years old. Friends introduced me to the church and uh, married my husband a couple of years later. He went to dental school. I had been at BYU when we met and we dated and uh, got married, had five children, and over the years we've had uh, a lot of different opportunities to serve in the church, and it's been a really wonderful experience for us to serve together in some of our callings uh, and serve sometimes completely separate. He served as a bishop when we were quite young, 
I served as a director of public affairs in the San Diego and uh, lower or southern Orange County and Riverside area for a number of years. And then we were called to serve as mission president and uh, companion in Peru a few years ago. And right now we are currently serving as church service mission leaders here in the Newport Beach Service Mission. Awesome. Wow. There's a lot there for sure. And so are you were you born and raised in California then? Um, I was actually born in Washington State, but moved to California, Southern California when I was 12 and have been here ever since. Awesome. Very good. And uh, you had, uh, I guess that what that launched this, uh, this interview was every week as I send out the weekly newsletter is I put a question of the week in there. And these are just random questions that come to mind. Uh, some of them you can probably tell are more thoughtful than others. But um, the question that week was, how has serving in church leadership been a blessing and a sacrifice for your family? And I guess the the reason I asked this question was there's sort of this cultural norm or this cultural feeling we want to perpetuate that all callings are a blessing. And, you know, we've heard the, ble- the the stories of the blessings that come and I've witnessed those blessings. They've been wonderful. But then we shy away from the really messy parts of sometimes serving the calling when it's really becomes a sacrifice to the point that it's impacting a family or a career or whatever it be. And so that's what I was hopefully uh, trying to stimulate from those that, that read the newsletter. And uh, you, you sent back a great sort of, it was, it was a longer than typical email, but I appreciated every word just from your experience. Um, what, maybe let's just start there. What intrigued you about this question about seeing sacrifice and blessings when it comes to callings? Well, I think the first thing that popped into my mind was when my husband was called to be a counselor in the bishopric and I was sitting in sacrament meeting with a brand new baby. And, um, I remember being, just so excited. I was a new convert to church. My husband was being called to be in the bishopric and they called his name and we all raised our hands and he stood up and walked away and left me with five children. And I, I started to cry and my mother-in-law leaned over and said, Oh, this is such a wonderful spiritual experience. And I didn't have the nerve to tell her this is the most frightening thing that's ever happened in my life. I can't do this by myself. Huge sacrifice. Um, for me, um, I was spoiled to have him with me all those years. But um, and then I, as I thought of that, I thought of all the blessings that we had from him serving as a bishop, me as his wife, and the callings that I had while he was the bishop. And um, so felt like I wanted to write and share some of those experiences. I'm sure other women have them, and they need to know it's okay to feel terrible when your husband gets up and walks away to go sit on right. the stand. You know? <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, and. Did that, I mean, would you say that feeling perpetuated at the, maybe during that first year, second year, or, or how did you, where'd you go from, from that pew feeling like, oh no, I feel abandoned here? I think, um, yeah, there were, I would say it only took a few weeks because my husband, he's, he's a great dad. And I had a three-year-old son who was, I would say way overactive. And he, um, he said, let's, let's try something new since he isn't really doing so good, not having both of us there. How about if we have this new thing that if, if he's if I if he's good during sacrament meeting, he can come sit on my lap after the sacrament. And this mm-hmm. three-year-old became the perfect gentleman in sacrament meeting because he wanted to go <laughs> sit on his dad's lap. Um, it didn't happen right away. I could tell you a story of when my husband uh, held up his three fingers for him to have to 
perhaps go out and spank him. And he went to three. And when he saw my husband stand up on the stand to come take care of his son, oh, wow. he said, dad, please don't kill me. So um, that was, you know, not every week went perfect, but, but it's worth the sacrifice. Yeah. Um, and then was was he called as a bishop after that as being in the bishopric or how soon did that he calling was, come? Um, two years later, he was called to be the bishop when the bishop was called to be the stake president. Served hmm. there, then he served in high council, state presidency, and then after that was when we were called to serve um, uh, in Por- Peru as mission president. Oh, wow. So one thing after the other. Leaders together, right? I think that's, that's right. Yep, yep. And so it was just one, one calling after the other then. For him and for me. Um, I yeah. was in Relief Society presidencies. I was the director of public affairs for San Diego, um, kind of the face of the church, if you will, to the media and and Mm -hmm. religious organizations. So we both stayed very active with our callings and learned how to shuffle back and forth, making sure one of us was at home when the other one was out serving. And when we could, we'd take the whole family wherever we were. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Did, was there any shift in dynamic when he was called as the bishop, as opposed to just, uh, you know, a member of the, of the bishopric? As far as like the dynamic um, think, of your family. Yes, because the, the, some of the, there were some ladies, for instance, in the ward that didn't think it was appropriate for my son to sit on their dad's lap when he was the bishop. He was their bishop. <laughs> and um, so that uh, he had to have some discussions with people in the ward. I remember him telling one lady that, well, this, this, he only, you have, anyone could be your bishop. My son only has one dad, one example of how to act during sacrament meeting. And so, you know, kind of the whole ward had to change, not just our family dynamics yeah. um, to make sure that our family was always taken care of. And I'm yeah. grateful that that we were able to work together to make that happen. Love it. And then uh, so during the, this time, was he bishop when you were called as the public affairs director in San, San Diego? Or? Now I'm really making you think. <laughs> um, I no. He, he had been released and he was on the high council. Okay. And what, what do you remember from that calling as far as, um, you know, I know there's many wards and stakes that are trying to make a, a good effort with, with public affairs and whatnot. Do any specific principles come to mind with how you serve there? So um, as the director of public affairs, I think one of our, my responsibilities was to put the church in a good light, but to always be honest and answer all the questions that needed to, especially to the media or other religious leaders. Um, our family dynamics changed again then because I was in a position where I was working with state presidents, area 70s, general authorities in Salt Lake, um, bringing tours to the Ochre Mountain Temple House, for example. Um, so I was away more and he was the one that then, in addition to being a dentist and working and being on the high council, he was um, doing a lot of the at home, keeping the home fires burning while I was doing my calling as well. Yeah. So I was appreciated how much, um, you know, we were able to work together to make me have this great opportunity. It was a wonderful opportunity that I had to work with so many wonderful brethren in the church. Yeah. And so you said you took trips out to Ochre, the Ochre Mountain Temple Open House? Mm-hmm. Yep. So, like did uh, with Latter-day Saints or just anybody who wanted no, to go? We, or how did that keep, work? I was a member of two uh, interreligious uh, organizations. One had the head um, imam from the mosque uh, and various non-Christian religions. 
Another one was an organization that was um, leaders of some of the mega Christian churches, the Catholic Church, Episcopal Church, um, such as the um, Archbishop uh, of the Catholic Church here. And we invited them, uh, Elder Haney and um, I, and one of Holly Brown was her name, one of my counselors. We um, took two sets of tours up to the Ochre Mountain Temple for them to be able to have the opportunity to be in the temple. They met with um, some of the brethren while they were there, were taken on a special tour at the time. It was with Elder Clayton and I can't remember the other brother's name. Um, he was the head of the temple department at the time. And uh, so we went and uh, took them to the temple, answered all their questions, spent three days touring Salt Lake, Temple Square, um, giving them a, a wonderful opportunity to see the gospel of Jesus Christ in action. We took them to Welfare Square and they saw what we really do. And some of these people, it really changed how they felt about the church and that which we do to participate in our communities. Some even went so far as to see the Christian side of our faith. Not only do we um, have the name of Jesus Christ in our church, but that we truly are Christian and that we live our lives in a very Christ-like manner. Wow. And so did you, did you fly them out to Utah or put them on a bus or how did they get out there? We flew them to Utah. Really? Wow. Yeah. The, you know, back in the day, Delta had tickets for a lot less than they do now. Yeah. And, <laughs> in fact, we had a, a one of the major leaders passed away while we were ready to plan a trip. And we got a call the day before that we needed to, that some of the leaders couldn't come. And instead of um, canceling, we rescheduled and just bought a new set of tickets because we weren't able to get the airline to refund our, our tickets. And so, you know, we were okay with that because we were, we knew we were doing something really great. And some of these leaders from San Diego and Orange County are people that um, have been on CNN specialists. They've been people that have worked with some of the presidents of the United States uh, as religious leaders. And so these were people that it was good to have them see the church in action and to not just take all the rumors that they'd heard in their lives about the church. Yeah. And a a temple open house experience would be great. And then obviously being so close to some of the the church, uh, welfare, you know, centers and whatnot, uh, so they could really see that. I love that idea. did that, was that a unique idea for your area or did you, how did you come up with that idea? Um, Elder Haney and I just chatted when he was my state president at the time and he was over the regional public affairs and, um, he, he and I were just sitting at the desk one day waiting for a meeting to start. And we started brainstorming with our committee and that idea came forward and he, he was a make it happen state president. I'm sure that's uh-huh. why he's now a 70 and uh, <laughs> area president. Nice. Nice. And, um, yeah, cause I, I think it just does so much of giving them an experience, right? Cause I think in interfaith efforts, it's more of like, all right, what's a local service project we can get together on and help out, which is good. You know, those are always going to be coming up and helping and just serve type of efforts, but to say, Hey, why don't we, uh, we put together a budget to help you have an experience with our faith. And that probably changed them and their perception of Latter-day Saints forever, right? I'm, I'm sure it has. I am. Nice. It's years later now, and we still have good relationships with many of those people. And it's it was a wonderful experience for them and for us. Yeah. And now President Nelson, I mean, there's there's probably going to be a, a temple dedication every weekend here in a, in a few months, <laughs> when, you know, in Utah or elsewhere that, uh, you know, that, that'll be a lot 
a, a great, I, I just love this strategy of using some of these big events. Cause I think as a, as a temple dedication or open house comes up, it's like, okay, I'm going to take my family, but oh, I wish I could take my neighbor or, you know, and of course we make those invitations if we can, but to really plan ahead and say, you know, I'm going to put a, a a strategy together so that we're going to start talking to our neighbors now, or we're going to start reaching out to the, you know, interfaith efforts right now. So that when that open house comes, they'll of course take you up on that invitation. You know, it's really, right. really and powerful. I think that when you use the term, use these opportunities, I'd like to say that these opportunities are there and we need to take advantage of the fact that these people really want to see, they want to know, they have questions. Right. And I'll tell you, walking the halls of a temple and asking, um, uh, Elder Clayton, for instance, questions. They actually had the opportunity of being with Elder Ballard as well. Um, and to be with them and to ask any question they wanted to about the church. And there was no ducking or hiding. The brethren were straightforward answering every question, which set a great example for me and how I could answer questions better back home with everyone else. And uh, so it it really did increase the the good name as well as the opinion that these leaders had of the church. Yeah. Awesome. All right. I want to um, uh, go back to your, so your journey with serving with your husband in various leadership capacities, whether officially like a, as a mission leader couple or unofficially as maybe the Bishop's wife um, during that time as Bishop specifically did, was there anything that you did to, or you both did to, have you more involved or participate or were you just holding things down at home or how did that any, anything come to mind during those years? Well, I was, ha I was still having children. Um, and so I was pretty much keeping the home fires burning. I was also a, a counselor in the relief society presidency during that time uh, for part of the time he was the Bishop. And um, so I think that I actually tried to be less involved uh, in some ways. We had a really wonderful, strong Relief Society president that was just mm. amazing when I was released from being, uh, she, the new, when the new president was called, I was not in that presidency. Mm -hmm. And she was just fantastic. And she just was able to you know, handle so many things and it was great. And I, I didn't want to, in some ways, be involved. You know, when the phone rang, for instance, I if you don't stop someone right away, sometimes people think the bishop's wife already knows everything that's going on. And so mm. some people jump right in and start telling you, you know, confessing their sins or whatever, because they think, you know, <laughs> and you don't and you don't want to be in that position, nor should you be. So I really um, I think in that area, I kept I tried to keep back and just be I was already very friendly um, and outgoing and just tried to had having had been in the Relief Society presidency too, I knew most of the sisters. So I just continued those relationships, friendships, and making sure that they were ministered to properly. Yeah. Uh, what do you remember? What's the story behind you being called uh, to serve in Peru? Uh, sitting at home one morning, the phone rang and someone said, um, I can't remember her name. She said she was a secretary for Elder Christofferson. And I said, the Elder Christofferson, I actually thought it was a joke. So um, <laughs> it wasn't a joke. And um, so the next day we had an appointment over, uh, it wasn't Zoom, but the church's version of Zoom Yeah. Back in the day. Um, that was about nine years ago now. So, um, and he interviewed us. And at the end of the interview, he said, you know, if we call you back in a month or so, you know, great. And if we don't have a great life. 
And um, then about a month later, uh, we received a phone call and it was um, President Uchtdorf, uh, his secretary that was calling to set up an appointment. And he met with us and again over Zoom, uh, called my husband and myself to serve uh, as mission president and companion in uh, Trujillo, Peru. Well, he actually nice. called us to serve a Spanish-speaking mission, and we didn't get our our assignment of where to serve until January. Oh, nice. nice. So, and I'll tell you, um, talk about um, you know your question, a sacrifice and a blessing. I um, when I received that call, I, I said yes. I I didn't question that, that if if a prophet called me on the phone, I wouldn't say yes to them. That I would serve. But when I was done, I really questioned if I would be able to serve. And um, I asked my husband, actually, if he'd leave so I could pray. And I knelt down beside my desk and out of my computer, and I just pled with the Lord to please give me a testimony of all the things I needed to have a testimony of. And I specifically just started with, did I, I questioned, did I really know Joseph Smith was a prophet of God? And I knelt down and said, I, I have to know this now. I'm going to teach missionaries this. I'm going to have to bear testimony. This can't be, well, sure, I joined the church and I thought it was a great idea. And I think he is or sure he is, but I had to know for sure. And uh, kneeling beside my desk, um, for me, the heavens opened and the feelings within me, I heard a, a, a voice in my heart that said, you've always known but you deserve to have this experience. And I was just overwhelmed with knowing that indeed Joseph Smith was a prophet of God and that everything I believed in was true. And I started then studying, uh, preaching my gospel and, and asking that question on all those principles so that when I got to the mission field a few months later, I, I was in, I was all in. So, yeah. Yeah. And that, 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 uh, you know, being called to something like that, obviously it's a, you know, when we talk about sacrifice and blessings and whatnot, obviously there's some very practical sacrifices that'll have to happen. You know, you're moving across the world and, um, you know, the shift of family dynamics and all that. Um, but I'm curious, like, would, I guess I'm just thinking about those, uh, the other wives out there to former priesthood leaders or even current priesthood leaders who, who are feeling sort of this sense of inadequacy or the sense of being dismissed or forgotten about or not included in the work because just the nature of how these, these callings are. And was this call as on a mission, did it feel a little heavier because you were actually being called yourself uh, to that role rather than just uh, as a supportive role? Right. I wasn't just somebody's, just somebody's wife. I guess that's a terrible <laughs> way to put that. We, we yes, get it. We get it. Yeah. It was my calling and I, I had to rise to the occasion and be what I needed to be. Um, I needed to love, in our case, 618 missionaries. Um, you know, that was a little undaunting to me uh, as I thought about it. You know, it's okay to love your mutual class or your loyal group, you know, of, of 12 girls, um, but to have... 618 or how many ever we were going to have um, and know that we needed to love them and guide them and help them. It was, it was pretty overwhelming for me. And yet, um, because I didn't just get to sit back and say, you know, the buck stops with you, honey. So I don't really need to worry about it. I had to worry too. You know, I yeah. was the one with every missionary when, when one was having a problem and was meeting with my husband, 
I was the one with the companion and making sure they had a good experience and they knew they were loved and that whatever was happening with that missionary wasn't going to, you know, it, it could have an effect of changing their lives for the good or the bad. And my job in a foreign language was to let them feel that love and um, learn enough Spanish to be able to communicate with them and have them know that I loved them and cared for them and wanted to help them through these hard times. Yeah. And obviously, I, I think many of us are familiar just the process of obviously getting ready. There's probably a lot of personal study and preparation and all sorts of things that happen, you know, as uh, up building up towards the summer when you actually leave. And then there's the mission leader seminar, whatever they call it these days, you know, over several days and hear from I think every member of the Quorum of the Twelve, and it's just a remarkable experience. But then, then you're in Peru. Your feet land on that soil. How do you? What? How did you, as the as a mission leader, that again? I, I think we have this uh, tradition of calling them the the wife of the mission president. But you are a mission leader. You're set apart as a mission leader. But from your perspective, from your experience, how did you get going in that calling? Well. I think it was helpful that President Uchtdorf at the time of my call said, this Friday, someone's going to call you on the phone and you're going to start doing Spanish lessons at the MTC. <laughs> and so um, I, they sent me books and I started studying not only um, the Spanish materials from the MTC um, over Zoom, but also uh, they invited me to come and I could spend as much time there as I wanted to. And since the call came in, November and we weren't leaving until the end of June. That gave me plenty of time. So I actually was able to spend six weeks up at the MTC in two week increments. Again, um, a husband's calling, a sacrifice by our whole family. Um, we had to sell our home uh, to serve. Um, and so we sold our home and moved in with my daughter. Um, and so she was there with my husband while he kept working. And, and we, there were also classes we attended on Preach My Gospel and how to be a good mission president and companion. And, and then we uh, and then I would leave for two weeks at a time and and he would stay home. And um, and all the kids by then were married. Our kids were married and um all of them had children by the time we left on our mission, so we weren't taking children with us. Hmm. But um, it changed the whole dynamics. I had, we had both have older parents. My um, father actually passed away while we were on our mission. And um, so the kids, our children and, and in-laws needed to take, they took a big lion's share portion of work and uh, responsibility and sacrifice as well uh, when we accepted this call. Yeah, yeah. and then. Did you feel, um, and I don't know, maybe this guidance is given, but did you feel an extra responsibility working with uh, the sister missionaries uh, uh, in the mission? You know, I did, and it was wonderful. Um, for us, it was a real blessing. We were called right as the 18, 19-year-old age mm -hmm. change. So the first, um, when we went to the uh, mission leaders or mission presidents, um, conference. What was that called? You, you had yeah, the, name. the seminar, the yes. Okay. <laughs> Mission leader seminar. Um, it was, um, we, we actually met about 17 of our missionaries who had all come. And this was the first group coming out after the age change. So we, um, arrived in Peru and two days later, we had about 28 missionaries arrive 
And many of them were sisters because you had the 19, 20, and 21-year-olds all coming in this group. And it was thrilling to work with them. It's when they changed the sister leader program in the mission so that we had sister leaders, sister leader trainers. So um, I was able to help them organize this entire uh, new way of serving a mission as a sister missionary and um, how, how we we just had great experiences together. I had, we had activities for them and growth experiences with them, as well as um, with the zone leaders and in the zone conferences that we um, held and then mission conferences. So it was great to be with those sisters. And, and I'm still, I'm still close to the sisters. We, after nine years, we still have reunions. We, I'm, I wish them happy birthday on their birthdays. Thank you, Facebook. And um, <laughs> it's, it's been great because most of our missionaries were Latin and from South America. And so uh, that 80%, our only way to contact them and keep in touch with them and to have this relationship is through the internet now, even though we have returned once to visit them and have a reunion down there. But most of what we do is, is over the internet. Yeah. And then what was, uh, your, I'm just thinking of different components of, of a mission, like zone conference, right? Like how did you, what was your, um, your contribution to zone conference or how did you involve yourself with those? Well, as my husband's companion, I was involved in most things. Um, most of our leadership meetings with, in fact, it's all of them. I went to the weekly um, leadership meeting with the two zone, uh, the two mission assistants. And um, we met, I had a voice like the assistants or my husband, and we would have these discussions about where we wanted the mission to go, what inspiration we'd received, um, how we wanted to move forward, what missionaries were struggling and needed someone to go out. And we'd say, okay, last time Elder Zavaleta went, Sister Marler, now you're going to go. And I'd go out with two elders and help them teach and, and train them and help them to grow. In some cases, they'd send me out. Sister Marla, you need to go out with these missionaries because this Elder Sotelo is amazing and he's going to teach you some great (laughs) things about how to teach the gospel. And um, so that was great um, to have those opportunities. But I really felt like I was really a companion with my husband, literally. Mm -hmm. And we worked on almost all things. There were certain things that um, I wasn't involved with, such as um, ecclesiastical Um, needs that maybe came up with the missionaries. But um, as I said, at those times when he was meeting with the missionary that was struggling, I was with their companion and sometimes even out um, teaching the gospel with a couple other missionaries as they were out so that they would continue to have a great experience when one wasn't able to be there. Yeah. How did did your Spanish improve pretty well over the three years? Yeah, because I went from not speaking Spanish at all to, I won't say I'm fluent, but I'm understandable and the Holy ghost is a great translator. And so <laughs> yeah. I spoke in uh, state conferences almost probably every other week. And um, then wards, if we, every week we spoke in one or two wards. So um, I, I started out only reading my talks and then I had some wonderful um, assistants to the president who um, said, it's time to put it down. You gotta, you gotta go with the spirit, and uh, so then the, I think my Spanish had to improve then too. And they'd sit in the front row, so that if I looked down, they helped me with the words, and and it got to be that that every member of every stake would help me with my Spanish um, as I gave my talks, and it was a wonderful experience. And we 
developed wonderful friendships and felt so loved by the people of Peru. I wouldn't change that experience for every, anything, even though it was probably the most difficult three years of my entire life. Yeah. Wow. What an experience and what a blessing for sure. And a sacrifice, you know, um, love it. So maybe as we wrap up here, I just want to sort of wrap up on the the topic of the wife of the leader, right? And, and, you know, I think they've, they've made some good steps with, you know, changing the title, you know, calling a mission president wife, a mission leader. And that's, that's, that's good. Um, but sometimes it's easy for, you know, cause some like being a bishop's wife, you know, that's not an official calling, even though it feels like a calling, there's a lot of the yeah. responsibility and sacrifice that comes with that. Um, what could leaders better understand as far as, uh, the topic of, of the wife of the leader of the priesthood leader? Well, I hope that the leaders realize that the wife of a church leader still has a lot of capabilities and abilities and that they don't need to necessarily be released to be a once a week teacher, a once a month teacher in Relief Society. Those callings are all important. There's not a calling that isn't important, but you don't need to always be released to have your husband be uh, in a calling of service. Um, and I think that the more that we to discuss with husbands and wives, families, what their situation is, for some, they need that. They need to be released. You have small children at home. Someone's got to tend them, you know. And um, But other times it might be that the husband and wife would be able to co-serve in different capacities and different callings in the church. I know my husband likes to say, well, he was a bishop. I was a counselor in a Relief Society presidency. Um, I have a daughter who was a primary president when her husband was a counselor and a bishopric. Um, if, if you have the capability and the desire to continue serving, I think the brethren should know that there are many of us that would love that and, um, that it's a real blessing that we have that we bring blessings to our families when we serve, even when there's sacrifices. And I wouldn't want to give up one of the opportunities I had because I had great priesthood leaders that recognized that we both had leadership capabilities and that we could um, serve. Um, the other thing I'd like to say though, is, um, men who have, a bishop, stake president, mission president, temple president, calling, they they hold, hold keys. And I think it would be great if women understood the keys of the priesthood just a little bit better so that they knew how to help and be a helpmate and how to be a co-leader with their husband when they have the keys. You know, somebody has to be where, as I said earlier, the buck stops here and it's where the keys are. And um, so that's something as a convert to the church, I felt blessed that I took a class at BYU and they talked about priesthood keys. And I gained that testimony of that early so that for me, it was never a conflict, but rather a joy to be able to serve by his side and help him to succeed. And then he lifted me up and helped me to succeed as I served alongside of him in our different callings. What would you say to maybe a, a wife of a leader who is really having a going through a tough time, maybe feeling dismissed or like that her influence isn't reaching the levels that she'd like or any, any you know, just or just bogged down by the day to day, you know, things that happen in a family and as her husband has to rush off to a meeting or whatever. Any any encouragement you'd give to that individual? Sure. First, kneel down and pray. Jesus is your best friend and he's going to help you through everything. Mm -hmm. Number two, make sure your husband realizes that the most important thing he's going to do for the rest of his life is be a husband and father to your family. And 
our husbands need to know that. They need to see that and they need to know how much they're needed to be in the home and to help us, that we don't need to feel like we're just the housewife when our husband is out serving. He should be just our husband first and just the father second. And then third, he's going to be whatever calling he has in the church. And um, I think when husbands come to realize that and wives and husbands work together and have discussions, I say now, after you've gone up off your knees and had the discussion with the Lord, have it with your spouse. And if you need to have it with your priesthood leaders, we need, it's okay for us to say, I have an idea, I have a thought, or this might not be working so well. Have you ever considered something different? And anytime I have approached a priesthood leader in a calling or just because they happen to be my priesthood leader, I have never had anyone put me down or make me feel less than. They've said, that is a th- something I've never thought about. We sometimes see change. We sometimes don't. But I've always at least felt like I was listened to and and I was helped in whatever my situation was. Love it. Well, the last question I have for you is as you reflect back on your time as being a leader, how has being a leader helped you become a better follower of Jesus Christ? I think that as we lead, we realize that we don't have the we don't have all the tools we need to be the best leader we might want to be. And um, that humility, turning to the Savior and asking him, where does he want me to go? What does he want me to do? Has helped me to be the leader that I've been able to become. Um, both a leader beside my husband in his callings and a leader in my own right, as the Lord has seen fit to call me to various callings. Um, For instance, now with service mission leaders, we have a co-calling. Neither one of us are, if you will, above or below the other. Neither one of us have keys. My husband doesn't hold keys. So we work together, absolutely linked arm in arm in our calling. And I think that's what the Savior wants us to do with Him. And by being a leader, it's taught me to humble myself, to be a better follower of Jesus Christ, a better follower of the leaders that I have that are called to preside over me. And I appreciate those leaders, our prophets, apostles, bishops, state presidents, mission presidents, and temple presidents that preside over me in different areas of my life so that I'm able to be the best I can be one step at a time. And that concludes this How I Lead interview. I hope you enjoyed it. And uh, I would ask you, could you take a minute and drop this link in an email on social media, in a text, wherever it makes the most sense and share it with somebody who could relate to this, this experience. And this is how we how we develop as leaders, just hearing what the other guy's doing, trying some things out, testing, adjusting for your area. And uh, that's that's where great leadership's discovered, right? So we would love to have you uh, share this with uh, somebody in this calling or a related calling, and that would be great. And also, if you know somebody, uh, any type of leader, who would be a fantastic guest on the How I Lead segment, uh, reach out to us. Go to leadingsaints.org contact. Maybe send this in individual an email letting them know that you're going to be suggesting their name for this interview. We'll reach out to them. And... Uh, see if we can line them up. So again, go to leadingsaints.org slash contact, and there you can submit all the information and let us know. And maybe they will be on a future How I Lead segment on the Leading Saints podcast. And remember, to get on the email newsletter list, simply go to leadingsaints.org slash 14.
It came as a result of the position of leadership which was imposed upon us by the God of heaven who brought forth a restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when the declaration was made concerning the own and only true and living church upon the face of the earth, we were immediately put in a position of loneliness. The loneliness of leadership from which we cannot shrink nor run away and to which we must face up with boldness and courage and ability.